Welcome to episode 164, Helping Children Cope with an Adult World from Big Feelings to Big Problems, featuring Dr. Melissa Monroe Boyd. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Melissa Monroe Boyd. Uh, Her jam is working with children and supporting caregivers in creating healthy environments for their children. She is active duty in the U.S. Army, and she also has her master's and doctorate degrees in clinical psychology. And she's also the author of a wonderful book called Be Is For Breathe, The ABCs of Coping and Fussy and Frustrating Feelings. And that was actually how I became familiar uh, with Dr. Monroe Boyd's work was through reading that book to my own children and using it in my therapy practice. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Monroe Boyd uh, into this conversation today about helping children cope with big feelings. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be a part of this segment. I look forward to, to sharing with you in the audience. Before we dive into this topic, why don't you tell us a bit more about your background and how you came to have this particular specialization? Yes, so I am a clinical psychologist. Um, I had my undergrad degree in psychology and uh, went to grad school for clinical psych. I went through military internship and postdoc at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in D.C. I've had mostly training working with soldiers, uh, service members, and their families. And when I was in grad school, my concentration uh, was also in children. The majority of my Military assignments have been more clinical in uh, medical treatment facilities, and most recently I've had more operational psychology experiences. I'm very much still tied into uh, working with youth and wanting to help in their overall wellness. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Gosh, I mean, where do we even start? So I know we're going to be talking about healthy coping and children specifically. Can you start by describing what you believe healthy coping is and how that's different from unhealthy coping? Yes. So I would describe healthy coping as having skills, toolbox in a sense, of different options to help in managing frustrations and feelings. The intent of healthy coping is that being able to engage in those activities helps with overall reducing stress, Um, enhancing psychological well-being, just having a healthy sense of emotional awareness. There's also unhealthy coping skills, so we can engage in activities that can lessen our stress, but long-term, they're not healthy for us. So it might bring immediate gratification, but long-term, it is, is not healthy. And so the idea of healthy coping is that you are gaining those skills that really have a positive impact on your overall emotional well-being. What are some unhealthy coping strategies that you often see or hear in your work with children and with families? And as we record this, we're in October of 2022, where anybody who has kids that are currently older than the age of two has absolutely changed their relationship with technology in the last few years due to the pandemic. So there's a big asterisk around that. But so what does unhealthy coping look like? What behaviors do you see? 
So for kids, unhealthy coping could be uh, avoidance, uh, so not wanting to engage, whether that's with a person or a thing that can bring a sense of stress. And so, again, um, immediately that might seem calming, but long term, they're not getting to trust themselves or even that experience of feeling frustrated and knowing that they can manage those feelings. Other unhealthy coping can be anger and frustration, which also in kids, interesting enough, anger and frustration could even be signs of sadness and depression, but it's how it's um, being exhibited and expressed is a lot of perhaps hitting or yelling, but unhealthy coping can be perhaps sleeping too much or eating too much or the opposite, eating too less or not having good sleep habits because not stress does not just impact our emotions, but it impacts us physically as well. And so those are some examples of how our body can, we can try to engage in activities to to lessen our stress, uh, but it actually can be unhealthy. I'm glad you brought up that piece about taking care of our bodies, our relationship with food, for example. That's certainly something that I have talked about in my practice, heard from many adults that say, yeah, one of the ways I comforted myself was by binging on carbs or, you know, I figured out that whatever this behavior was, was pleasurable to me. And that was where I reached for relief. Um, Do you find that you find that information from parents or are kids reporting, this is what I do to feel better? I think just in assessing um, what it is a child is doing to help feel better, sometimes it is the child that brings up that they like to have their favorite snack or they kind of gravitate towards a certain food. Um, But often parents can bring it up as well if they notice just changes in eating habits and that that's an overall concern for them. Um, And the idea is to not restrict sweets or to not have any foods that are comforting, um, but anything that's that's too much can really be unhealthy. And so having those healthy food options is is definitely important since what we put in our body does impact our mood and our behavior and our emotions. So being able to walk through that with a child so that they understand the impact that food can have, even as they're perhaps um, going through a a stressful situation. So it's a matter of moderation, not of restriction, but of moderation and engaging the family in a conversation about those kind of physically gratifying behaviors that could build and become problematic. Right. And I'm really glad that you mentioned engaging the family since kids don't typically buy their own food, but sometimes it can be changing the family's dynamics um, of their eating habits. And so it's not just an individual change, but it's something that the family can work on together. And that really helps the child to feel supported. You are a major proponent for introducing these coping skills at a very young age. I'm sure that's one of the reasons that you wrote a book for young children, breaking down a myriad of different coping skills. Why do you feel that's so important to start this basically as young as we can? I think it's it's really key to start when someone is uh, young because a child's ability to manage or cope with difficult situations at a young age, it really does prepare them for future challenges um, and it enables them to just have a greater success in life. When they come across roadblocks and bumps in the road, they have, again, I use those words, a toolbox and a sense of skills that they can gravitate towards that they know are helpful that they developed when they were, they were younger. If you happen to know any, can you share some of the research just about what coping skills work, which ones don't? You know, you've mentioned a couple of them like avoidance, physical aggression, overeating. Um, But 
how much has this kind of stuff been studied in terms of the use of mindfulness or um, art therapy, things like that? Right. So um, a lot of good work being done in regards to social emotional learning and mindfulness and how introducing these skills in a lot of classrooms and homes, even classrooms now having calm corners and just this ability to help the child feel empowered that they have options in regards to how they manage what it is that they're experiencing. I believe that at some some time, perhaps before this was really um, supported and encouraged, it was very easy for adults to tell a child it'll just be okay or just calm down or just stop. But they're already experiencing that feeling. And so giving them ways to experience it in a healthy way is is really most important so that we're not saying you can't have that feeling, but you can have that feeling and also have a sense of control in how you manage it. So a key coping skill is deep breathing. Since our breathing really, I know we talked about how stress impacts us, not just emotionally, but even physically, but whether that's taking some deep breaths in in the car, in your classroom, anywhere, that's somewhere that you can really take some deep breaths to relax and then to think about what it is that is uh, bothersome. Often when we're upset, it's not just our emotions that get high, but even just how we're feeling and we can get hot, we can get tense, muscle tension um, is something that can happen to our bodies, this tightness overall. And so just taking those deep breaths, it helps to not just relax our minds, but also to relax our body. Other skills that are really helpful, even muscle relaxation. So I talked about that tightness in our body that can be experienced, but tightening up different muscle groups and then purposely relaxing them helps with being intentional about what is going on in your body and paying attention to signs and symptoms, almost as if our body is screaming at us in a sense. And so you're taking time to purposely tense up those body parts and then relax them. Other coping skills I like to do with children is even looking at positive affirmations, those words that are t- that we tell ourselves since our thoughts greatly impact our emotions. And it's really uh, neat when kids, they love to hear positive remarks from their parents, from their teachers, but just being able to do that for themselves, to tell themselves positive words, helpful words, even if something is bothering them, but to know that they can think about their thoughts and introduce helpful thoughts, even if outside situations can be bothersome. Uh, You mentioned some other skills such as art therapy, which is really a a beautiful skill since it can be difficult to talk about what is bothering you, but you can still express yourself down on paper. So whether that's through art or journaling, that's just another form of expressing what it is that you are feeling inside. And that might open up the door to uh, being able to talk about what is a stressor or the art itself might just be uh, therapeutic in nature. You brought up so many great points. And I want to go back to them. One of the first things you talked about was the use of mindfulness in schools. For our listeners who maybe have not heard it yet, I want to um, invite you to listen to an episode that we released a couple of years ago, uh, featuring Dr. Diane Gayhart, where she's specifically talking about the use of mindfulness and meditation in school systems. So I encourage you to take a listen to that. Um, doctor, you mentioned something called a calm corner. I have not heard this term before. Uh, can you talk more about that? And beyond even the classroom, how can parents and caregivers uh, use that in their homes? 
Yes, so a calm corner, just having a space that's really designated for the sole purpose of a child feeling safe, feeling comforted when their emotions are perhaps too high or they're just needing a, a sense of control, whether that's emotional or physical control. So calm corners often have different uh, gadgets, whether that's fidgets or something that can be comforting to, to feel relaxed. Often pictures of different emotions um, other than just happy, sad, mad. But there's other feelings that we have, whether that's disappointed or frustrated or excited or nervous. So these pictures, they really help with building that vocabulary so kids can express themselves and hopefully share what it is that they're experiencing. But a calm corner is really intentional on being a place where kids can really feel a sense of comfort and that they have tools in their vicinity that they could have a sense of gaining control over their emotions or their physical tension. This to me opens up a really interesting topic about timeouts. Can you speak for a minute about how you see timeouts and certainly parenting and caregiving strategies continue to evolve? So maybe the strategies that were mainstream when you and I were young are not the same ones that are now, but certainly it can happen that parents yell uh, when their children are upset and then it's a go to your roof. <laughs> um, or I can also imagine go to your calm corner where it's like you're in trouble and you need to go do this thing. Can, can you talk about the difference between a really deliberate use of a calm corner and a potentially more problematic uh, punishment of calm corner. I think one of the differences is that with a timeout, my view of it is that you want the child to just relax what it is that's upsetting them to really bring down whether that's their heightened sense of uh, words that they're using or behaviors. And with a calm corner, you're presenting them with options around them that are comforting, whether that's pillows, stuffed animals, uh, just a peaceful atmosphere. So you're introducing tools to them to help in de-escalating their emotions. As with a, a time out, you're not necessarily reinforcing positive behaviors. You're wanting to see behaviors just stop. Calm Corner introduces images, tools around them to really help in that de-escalation. Compared to a timeout, it really can be just to stop behavior. I mean, you're not really providing those that opportunity to feel comforted and, and to feel safe. You bring up a really good point. I can't remember where it was, but I remember reading recently, you know, how often do caregivers explain to a child, for example, how to clean their room? We say, you know, please go clean your room. But it really gave me pause of going, oh my gosh, like, I don't know if anybody ever explained that to me. Like that it's another example of we sometimes mistakenly expect children to know how to do something without actually showing them what calming down looks like, without showing them what cleaning their room looks like, or filling up a water bottle or whatever it is. And the importance of trying to introduce those ideas early and calmly <laughs> to actually reinforce them as rewarding behaviors instead of punishing. One of the um, other differences with the comp corner versus a timeout, with a timeout, 
that's really disrupting the relationship between whether it's a parent-child or just another adult figure. In general, if a child is upset, they're wanting to be heard or to express themselves in some way. And so sending a child away, it's um, just a way of neglecting their emotional needs. They're not feeling heard. They're not really even being seen. That's the opposite of what we want to do. We want that child to feel heard and to express themselves in a healthy way. And the Calm Corner can provide that environment for them, especially if they're joined by an adult who can sit there and, and, and also feel safe with them. Thank you for bringing that point up too, because that's that's another issue that comes up is if a if a family if a caregiver uses timeouts you know quote unquote timeouts how do we work basically within the definition of what that is and I've had the same experience myself as a parent and also working with families of like are we inadvertently reinforcing that when a child has a big feeling and it's coming out that we say, you need to be by yourself. You can't be around the family. No one's going to be with you. And so it becomes this kind of scary reinforcer of abandonment associated with big feelings. How do you talk with caregivers who really believe in timeouts with a children with a child by themselves how do you kind of psychoeducate around let's look at this strategy instead <laughs> Right. So I think providing the education that if, if timeout is a method that they would like to utilize, it really key to tell the child, child why they're going in timeout. Um, and even maybe changing the words to reframe it to say, you're going to have some alone time to think about what it is that is frustrating you. Also having some parameters and a time frame. So timeout is not just forever, but going to have five minutes to, to think on your own about what it is that you're experiencing. You're going to have a, a, some time just away from others so that we can also think about how we're feeling. So it's a mutual sense of we both need some space in order to bring down or to de-escalate what it is that we're going through. And I think also just being able to know that the child is being checked on. So even if it's five minutes, still checking in to say, how are you doing? What is it that you're thinking about? So it's not this sense of total isolation, which really be more negative and be more of a punishment rather than wanting to reinforce positive behaviors. Timeouts, that is not uncommon language with adolescents and adults around the, I'm making a tea with my hands, you know, around a timeout when arguing, when people are getting, you know, so physiologically activated that they're emotionally flooded. We're no longer working out of our frontal lobe. There's probably nothing wise or productive that's going to come out of our mouths. How do you recommend parents talk to children about that with themselves? Because every parent has matched or exceeded their kid's big feeling on occasion. Um, how do parents talk with kids about their own need to go self-soothe and go in their own proverbial calm corner to not uh, further inflame a tense situation? No, I think it's really important that as parents, adults, we are modeling those positive behaviors. And I think being able to verbalize and say, I do need a break. I need to think about what it is that I say because I am frustrated. I am upset. 
so that you're actually showing the child that we are going to have these emotions, but we can still express ourselves in, in healthy ways. And sometimes we need to have a pause before we say something perhaps that we don't want to say or we do something that we don't want to to do. I think the, that modeling is key and maybe even doing that together, being able to say, okay, together we're going to have five minutes or I alone just need to take some time to think about what it is that is bothering me. Um, and being able to say that you are upset is also okay. So it's not this sense that we're always supposed to feel good, we're always supposed to be happy, uh, but we will have times that are frustrating and that we wanna work through them in the healthiest ways possible so that we can get back to a healthier, uh, more joyful state. When you work with children who are more sensitive bigger feeling feelings sometimes what can come on, on with that is more perfectionism or guilt or shame with quote unquote acting out behaviors when you're working with kids and they are experiencing guilt or remorse or regret about breaking the lamp or throwing their goldfish crackers in anger or whatever it is and they're kind of in that loop perhaps a child is is prone to anxiety. How do you talk with them about, you know, what you're feeling is valid, but also normalizing everybody gets upset doesn't mean you're a bad person. Like, how, how do you have that conversation? I think that normalization is is really key that we do get upset and we can say things that we didn't mean to say, we didn't want to say. I think the key with kids is being able to see if they can recognize an option of what else they could have done differently. If they feel stuck in a sense that that's the only thing I could have done, that's the only thing I could have said. I mean, if the situation happened again, I would say the same thing. That's more concerning as compared to oh, I, I could have expressed myself in this way, or I could have done this um, in a different way. Uh, so sometimes using techniques such as a thought record where you can go back and reflect on what you automatically thought in that situation and what you automatically did versus, okay, this is, this is an alternate uh, option in regards to behaviors or thoughts I could have had in that same situation. Uh, so it's a way that in the moment you're reflecting back on how you responded and then being able to see, okay, there are alternates uh, or alternate behaviors in regards to how it is that I expressed my, myself and my emotions during that time. Thank you. I think that that example is really helpful. I remember a book, I think called The Explosive Child, that talks about that exact strategy of when there has been a time or times where things go off the rails to, as a caregiver to go back with the child and sit down and talk about what are other ways that we can handle this? How can I support you in the future? And to really engage the child in that problem solving process to help them come up with solutions to the problem. And at least in that book, the author had proposed, like, we don't shoot ideas down. So we don't say, oh, no, not that one. But we just initially start with the solicitation of ideas, make a list and then talk through here's why this one may or may not work. You know, we can't always just go on a walk. What if it's pouring outside? We live in an apartment on, you know, on in a high rise, like that one's not going to work. Like, so coming up with practical solutions, but I, I appreciate what you just said. And I like the term the practical solutions, because uh, there, 
there can be a lot of different things to do, but some things might not be the most helpful given the environment or the, or the situation. So kids knowing that they have those options. Um, and I love thought records because sometimes we do gravitate towards wanting to talk about the emotions or the behavior. Um, and sometimes we don't tap into thinking about our own thoughts, like what was on your mind? What were you thinking at that time? Um, and how might that have impacted what it is that you said or did or felt? And so just being able to go through sometimes those writing exercises or just talking out loud about their perspective during that, that time in that situation and then in hindsight and seeing, oh, what else was there that was an option that I perhaps could have engaged in? It really uh, can be a, a very helpful technique. Thank you. Um, I assume thought records are pulling from cognitive behavioral therapy. Where do you recommend finding them? Or do you really just recommend a parent grabs a piece of paper and they sit down and I guess really look at the ABC, <laughs> um, the antecedent behavior and consequence and really focusing on the antecedent? How, how do you do it? So there's some really good resources within the CBT uh, realm in regards to diff different examples of thought records. But I think if this is something that you're doing just within a home, just on the side, just being able to look at ABC is a quick way, your affect, your feelings, your behavior, and then your cognitions, your thoughts. That's kind of a really quick way to just take some time out to pause and see what was going on here. And not that there's always one start point. Sometimes it might be that you're noticing the the behavior first or the thoughts, but just being able to, able to reflect on those three areas can really help bring about a meaningful conversation and hopefully something that's learned and gained from that time spent reflecting on what it is that occurred and what else could, could have happened. Wonderful. Thank you. So the ABC that you just said is different than my more behavioral ABC. Yours was affect or feeling behavior and cognition. So thoughts behind it. So I just want to restate that for our listeners. That was affect behavior and cognitions or thoughts. Um, thank you. I appreciate that uh, breakdown. You are a big proponent of bibliotherapy. Can you tell me more about that? How you recommend parents introduce that? And as we talk about this, I have an interesting relationship with bibliotherapy as a parent of young children that I think most clinicians who are parents probably have more books about feelings than other parents do. So there's like a whole bookshelf about different books of feelings, including yours. Um, and one of my experience has been, I pull out a book and I go, wow, like I, I can see you're really worried about XYZ thing that's happening. Can we read about anxiety? And one of my children is like, no, <laughs> um, tell me, like, how do you view bibliotherapy? How do you introduce it? How, how do you, um, and, and not enforce it, but encourage its use, even with kids like mine, who are not always buying what you're selling? Okay. <laughs> well, um, books are my family that we love books. We are, are avid readers. And I think that books can really be helpful with having conversations about problem solving, about feelings, decision making, self-awareness. And so the idea of bibliotherapy is that you're involving storytelling to help bring about the content of the book and relating it to what, is, what it is that a child is going through. The intent is that you're gaining insight through 
through the reading materials to develop strategies and an understanding as to what the child is going through. So you're looking at the process of reading and reflecting and discussing the literature to help shift and discuss what it is that is perhaps also going on in the child's life. So it does not necessarily be have to be that a child that is experiencing anxiety is reading a book about anxiety, but it can be that perhaps the book, and it could be perhaps a general picture book that you're introducing concepts and discussing. What do you think that child perhaps could have felt nervous about? What do you think they could have been worrying about? How do you think they could have managed a sense of being nervous? So the idea is that through pictures, through the literature, they're able to have a conversation and hopefully it's relatable and it helps them reflect on what it is that they are also experiencing. You bring up an interesting consideration, at least speaking from my experience. I've noticed that if a book doesn't overtly address whatever the emotion is, so it it's not a little spot of anxiety, which is a book we have, um, but it's a book, as you said, like with a character that may be experiencing anxiety, it's much easier to get my children to buy in because it's not as obvious, it's not as overt. For caregivers who are wanting to find, who find themselves in my position, um, who are wanting to find those more covert coping books, how do we find them? (laughs) How do you search for them when you're not looking for a book that has that thing in the title? If it's a book that you're looking for to help a child deal with anger, for instance, perhaps looking for books that also talk about just like fussy feelings or big feelings. So it might not be overtly like anger, frustration, but we do have big emotions. So sometimes just being creative and what it is that you're uh, you're searching for, even just using coping skills, coping strategies, kids have a a range of emotions. I think we tend to gravitate towards the happy, sad, mad, but sometimes just books addressing emotions and feelings can really bring bring about a lot of great resources. With the aim being that you're really using that gap or bridging that gap of literature and and providing information to help the child feel supported in what it is that they're uh, relating to within the book. Thank you. Can you talk for a minute about a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset and how development of coping strategies ties in to nurturing a more growth-based mindset in our children. So a fixed mindset can be that a child really can see things perhaps as really black or white. Perhaps they're either really good at something or they're not. Um, They might have difficulty with having a sense of a gray area that they might not be the best at a certain skill right now, but they're working towards it. That would be more of a growth mindset that they're looking to improve skill and that they understand that it takes effort and practice compared to a, a fixed mindset that I made a mistake, that means I, you know, I can't do it again, or I got frustrated, therefore I have to give up rather than I got frustrated. Perhaps if I take a break, I can try again. And so it really shows that sense of I have to put forth 
something extra or a shift in what it is that I am trying to accomplish in order to hopefully see a result rather than a sense of almost in a fixed mindset, uh, perhaps giving up and really seeing that there is no uh, gray area or other options. Often kids that have a fixed mindset could be quite critical of themselves and that they perhaps even have some concerns with confidence or self-esteem, which is impacting their ability to want to try again or to see that trying again can result in a different outcome. Thank you. I appreciate you kind of breaking that down and how all these pieces fit together. For children that have more severe behaviors because of underlying medical or behavioral health conditions, where if, if you try to sell them on, we're going to do a little bit of art therapy, let me pull out some paints and pieces of paper, there will be items <laughs> thrown across the room. What are like the most basic strategy for parents that are struggling to support their children and coping with big feelings when the children have major behavioral episodes? Right. Uh, so for concerns that are major or concerning or even harmful, I do believe having a therapeutic team is important for medical behavioral health professionals. It's also important to hear from the child what it is works for them, because if introducing art or introducing books or deep breathing is not something that they gravitate towards, uh, really hearing from them about what it is that they would like to do so that it's seen as more of a team effort. It's not just mom and dad wanting you to feel calm and wanting you to feel better, but also for themselves to realize that this is not a good feeling when I'm really upset or that I have to do this certain behavior in order to feel heard. Like, how can I still feel heard? How can I express myself? How can I feel better by doing this particular activity? So it does take more of a team approach. I believe that team approach does involve child as well. I know sometimes perhaps if it's a really young child or they're not able to verbalize, it can be hard to navigate what it is that works for them. But if they can communicate and they can express what they think can be helpful and they're open to even trying new strategies, I think that's a really good start because it might not be, I know for my son, he does like to take a break and go to his room for a few minutes and I sometimes will ask him, let's talk about it. Tell me what's going on. But he likes that space. He sees that taking a break really does help him to then come back and be able to talk about it. And it's not that he doesn't have other strategies, but he does tend to gravitate towards going to find something in his room to play with if he's feeling frustrated rather than wanting to talk about it right away. As a psychologist, I love to talk about it. I want to hear from him what it is that's going on, but noticing that that's not immediately what he needs um, is an adjustment. So all kids are different. So I've, I've, my kids teach me a lot and I learn from them uh, in addition to others that I've, I've been able to help. That is certainly the truth <laughs> from one parent to another. Um, one of the things that you and I had talked about before we started recording was having hard conversations with kids. I think we caregivers and clinicians would absolutely love to live in a world where bad things didn't happen to us or to anybody else and where we can really protect the innocence of childhood. And yet that is not the world we live in where bad things happen, whether that's community tragedy or natural disasters or death and loss. Can we talk a bit about how 
we as clinicians talk with our child clients about big, tough topics and also how we can support parents who are also going through these same experiences and then needing to kneel down and talk to their kids about it, which is just layers of hard. Right, right. I think uh, these these experiences um, that can be scary, whether it's a natural disaster or a school shooting or just something within your community that can be quite scary, I think just creating that space for that child to know that they can bring up that topic, that even if it's not something per se to solve or to, I guess to solve because we often have this sense of wanting to fix it, uh, but just giving them a sense that there is safety within within your environment of talking about it, bringing them, letting them know that being able to have a support network, uh, a support team, whether that's talking to their sibling, talking to their teachers, being able to trust those that are around them, even though there are people in the world that can do um, wrong things. I think just letting them know and giving them that space to talk about and to discuss what it is that they're experiencing inside. And then with parents also being able to encourage them to have age-appropriate conversations with kids, because even if you're not bringing up that topic at home, perhaps they're talking about it at school or they're hearing about it. And so just introducing that it's okay to have these conversations at home. It's okay to say that you're scared. It's okay to say that these things happening around us can feel overwhelming. I think it's just creating that safe space for them can really be helpful. Having been a parent who has experienced these things happen, you know, in our news, in our world, in our communities, in our personal lives, and then feeling that pressure, I distinctly remember getting down on my knees as we were watching a wildfire across the road on the hill right across from our home and evacuating. And having this conversation with my then four or five-year-old child. So many big feelings. (laughs) Um, Do you recommend honesty? Um, And I ask because I think sometimes for caregivers, we don't want to talk about it. You know, we either, either because it's very difficult for us um, or perhaps because we're worried that we're going to, do more damage by talking, you know, we don't want our children terrified to be out in the community. You know, we don't want our kids crying every time they see their grandparents because they're afraid of losing somebody. You know, I I think there's a lot of fear around talking honestly with children about this. How do you talk with caregivers about that if they're hesitant to talk about the thing or things with their kids? I think if a caregiver is hesitant, it's important to encourage them to be aware of just their own emotional state. If it is a lot of sadness and there's a lot of anxiety there or or just a sense of also being scared, I think just helping them to recognize that this is something that they would like to protect themselves from. And so it makes sense that they want to protect their child as well. But at the same time that they're experiencing their emotions and encouraging them to find out what it is that their child is thinking about, even just observing their child's emotions. It might not be that they're bringing the conversation up right away, but just helping them to 
be mindful of what it is that perhaps your child could be experiencing, even if it's not something that's being dis discussed. And again, just giving their child that reassurance and support and being genuine that negative things do happen, can happen, but you want to really help them to still feel safe in their environment, even though there are these things that happen in the world that we would really rather not happen. So I think tapping into their own emotional state and observing their child's emotions and again, just making room and making space for if a topic is, is brought up that they really can listen, even if it's something that they cannot fix, uh, but that they can be available by listening, which really goes a long way. Prior to recording, you and I had talked about perhaps the preference difference between parent and clinician, that when these big community things happen, or even personal life things happen, some caregivers don't want them really discussed in therapy. How do you talk with the caregiver about that? How do you talk with a child about that? Um, because it, it can feel like walking on a minefield. Right. I think if a child is bringing up a topic, say a school shooting, a natural disaster, and they have not had that opportunity to talk with an adult, a parent about that same topic, and perhaps that parent has been direct that they don't want to share that with the child or they don't want to have those conversations yet, I think being honest as a clinician with a parent that this was something that was brought up, it is something that is on the mind of their child and just encouraging them to help their child in some way to manage what it is that they're feeling. So it might not be that the parent wants to have a conversation, but perhaps encouraging them, perhaps they can write about it. Uh, perhaps they can both write about it. Perhaps they can have some time where they're reading about it together and then having a conversation. So I think there's ways to be creative, even if it's not a direct conversation that can be uncom uncomfortable or perhaps overwhelming for the parent, but just using tools around them. I think writing and reading can really help to bridge that gap between what it is that someone is thinking, what it is someone wants to share, and maybe they just don't have the words or they're just really uncomfortable sharing because sometimes there can be a lot of unknown when it comes to some of these tragedy, tragedies. I mean, you cannot predict what it would happen, but I think just making a safe space and, and being able to, as a clinician, share with the parent that these are things that, that came up, you want to be part of their support, support system as they experience what it is that is bothering them. Again, as a parent that's had these conversations, not too long ago, we had to put down our, our dear old dog. And that's been an interesting experience for me as a parent, because I'm totally tearful about it too. And so when my children say, oh, I want to talk about our dog, I get misty eyed. Um, how do parents and caregivers discern basically what is a adaptive, healthy amount of emotion for us to show about things that are affecting us when we may have fear about appearing out of control or that it's too big for us to handle, you know, that this feeling is too big that if I'm crying, then it means I'm out of control, which, which we're not. But I think particularly for children, how do we invite children into that space where yes, a parent can feel this big feeling or different big feelings alongside yours and we're okay? 
I think it's really helpful to model um, going back to the healthy coping and really being authentic that the example that you gave is a, a great one. This one that we've experienced in my family, the loss of a pet and being able to share that you are sad, that this is something that really is difficult, but being able to model what it is that you're doing to manage those feelings because that's reassuring the child that even with those feelings, you can you can still feel safe. And so whether it's, okay, I'm really sad about missing our dog by watching videos of the dog, by looking at pictures that really helps me and asking them what helps them. Uh, So perhaps it's not just focusing on the loss, but it's focusing on how you're managing and coping with that loss. Um, And I think that's something children really appreciate is knowing that not everyone is feeling good when something negative happens. I think that creates confusion for them to say that everything is fine when something happened that was not fine. Uh, so I think being genuine that you are also sad, you're, you're missing that person, that, that pet, that thing, but really focusing on those coping skills uh, really goes a long way in, in modeling positive and healthy coping behaviors. Some of the things that are experienced in communities may have a layer of controversy associated with, associated with them. So different communities feeling events or natural disasters perhaps differently than other communities do because of socioeconomic status, because of uh, ethnic and racial cultural factors. When there isn't agreement about this thing being bad, you know, like COVID is an example. There are significant deaths and murders in specific communities that are a major concern and that the school system may not know how to address. And so then it's kind of on the parent or caregiver to talk about these things, even if there's controversy among children. I've seen that as a parent of like, these are the things we're talking about in our home. These are the things we're talking about at our table. And then a child goes into daycare, community, school, whatever. Here's a different message about that thing, whatever that thing is, whether it's coronavirus or George Floyd or or something as devastating as that. I'm curious for you, how do you talk to children about that discrepancy when there are these controversies that are muddying the water about someone's ability to grieve and be heard. Right. I think being genuine with the differences that we do perceive and understand and receive information in different ways. And so just being genuine that we, or however they're feeling about a situation, really might differ than someone else. And that does not take away from what it is that they're feeling or experiencing. If they believe that a particular strategy or behavior um, is really wrong um, and should not have happened, or it's just really an error and someone else seems more nonchalant with it, that does not mean that their feelings are are incorrect. Um, So just acknowledging that there are different frustration tolerance um, and different views and different mindsets, but that does not mean that you are in error or that it has to be 
kind of another negative way, or if you're really, really upset then about that difference, there's ways to, to advocate and, and to speak out. But I think just knowing that their viewpoint is valid and that it is important uh, and that it matters, even if it is different than someone else, uh, given the same, same situation and experience. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's, it sounds like one of the real takeaways from this conversation is not only nurturing a growth mindset, but nurturing flexibility within a family system around talking about feelings, talking about belief systems. And by nurturing that very flexibility, we're creating opportunities for children to be able to explore how these things feel for them instead of it being, no, that big feeling isn't welcome here. Right, right. Because that goes in back to that fixed mindset that it's either black or white. Um, and that gray area often is not heard or, or accepted, but and it doesn't have to be accepted by others just for themselves accepting that I do feel differently about the situation. I am thinking about this in a different way. I think that in itself can be therapeutic because it, it, it brings some sense of resolve and not that there's a stress about having to think about this, um, just like everyone else does. Your background in the military has led likely to relocations with your family and is very common among military families. It was common among different facets of my family and relocation for many families is just part of life, whether it's because of job changes or uh, military or whatever it is. Specifically around moving and relocation, how do you recommend caregivers help young children transition? How much warning do you give that child? How do you talk about it? I mean, it's a huge thing for kids to go through. Right. Moving and changing schools, changing homes. As a military family, um, it is a, a big adjustment for kids and not just adults. And I think starting there, that this is not just something that your child is going through, we are going through this as a family and being open and honest, again, age appropriate, um, I think, depending on their age, giving them really details about perhaps their new neighborhood or their new school. And then also being honest that there's changes that perhaps we will not be able to anticipate, whether that's with moving dates or with the location. So I think talking about it helps. I think writing and having as many visuals as possible can really be helpful. A calendar, counting down days, and keeping something I've done with my family is trying to keep some things really consistent. So when we relocated recently from Korea, we stayed involved with soccer up until the last minute because it was something that we were doing on a routine basis. I did not want to stop everything abruptly. So we stayed as much as we could involved So because that was something that they enjoyed. Um, and as other things around them were moving, we wanted to have some consistency as possible. We also really tried to research our new area together as a family to find out what parks and what activities and what sports were 
available. Kids did Vacation Bible School in Korea, and we found a very similar Vacation Bible School here in Maryland where we were located too. So just trying to keep some things that are familiar to them as as part of the picture as other things are going away and they and they will naturally miss. So I think involving them in the process, having those visuals and those countdowns, and also keeping as many fun and enjoyable activities going so that they can have some familiarity even while there's a lot of change going on. Thank you. I really appreciate that because so many caregivers are faced with that and it's it's hard for caregivers to move and it's just so loaded. You just came up with some great ideas about trying to establish security in systems that feel comfortable. I thought the countdown was a great idea so the child knows what to anticipate. Um, and I have seen many a book <laughs> as well about moving. <laughs> I, the one that's on my bookshelf right. is uh, a very old copy of Berenstain Bears. <laughs> um, but I, so that's one of those that it's a storybook that, that has, <laughs> it does talk about moving, but it's more of a storybook. And for some reason, it's acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to add, just in regards to the moving, to make time to say goodbyes as well. I think that's really important. I know for my daughter who's nine, uh, friendships mattered a whole lot more this this move compared to uh, when we moved when she was five. And so making time for goodbyes and trying to do things that are special for them and really hearing from them, helping them to be a part of the process so that they can adjust to the transition as, as smooth as possible. Thank you. I appreciate, I think, folks who have been in the military probably have cornered the market on addressing this topic with their families. So thank you for speaking both as a professional and your own personal experiences. One other question that I have for you before we tie up our conversation today, how do you feel about technology and coping? Like this one is a toughie. Because like one of the things you mentioned was the potential for avoidance as an example of unhealthy coping. Um, how do you balance that? Because I've met many clients who say that, yeah, while well, my parents were divorcing, I played tons and tons of video games and I would just disappear into the basement and that was how I got through it. H- how do you feel about that clinically? What do you recommend? Right. So I I think video games can be okay. I think anything that is too much can be unhealthy. And so I think monitoring the time uh, that is spent in video games and also being able to assess the reason if, if it is more avoidance, that's different than engagement. They are on video games because they are perhaps interacting with peers or those that they know. That's very different than avoiding and wanting to be just by themselves, removed from everyone else. In both in both ways, I would say the time frame in moderation is really important. And also being able, going back to that modeling as a parent or even a clinician to say, sometimes it's hard for me to pull away from my phone. It can be a huge distraction. But having some time involved with media, with video games, it, it can be okay. But I think assessing the, the reasoning behind it and then also the amount of time are important areas. We were talking about an article or some recent research that I'm looking forward to learning more on uh, just in regards to video games after a trauma and how uh, it can actually help in the coping process long term, uh, depending on how 
the time frame between the trauma and when they're engaging in, in a video game. I look forward to learning about those things. And I often learn from my patients as well, as far as games that they're involved with and how it can be helpful. Yes, and apps that um, really are not just per se just gaming, but they're actually helpful and they're gaining skills or other tools from it. So I don't think it's bad altogether, the video gaming at all. Uh, but definitely the, the um, moderation is important. And if it is something that they're engaging in with others that they know that are safe, um, then it can be helpful through the process. One of the phrases that you used was the difference between avoidance and engagement. I, I think that framing is really helpful. Um, just to conceptualize what's going on right now. Is this my way of self-soothing and I am engaging potentially with community or even with um, mindful distraction, if you will? Like, <laughs> we all need that, says everybody scrolling on social media. You know, like every once in a while, our brains just, you know, blah. Um, so I, I think your point to moderation is a good one. And to, to mention this, um, to bring it up more, as you mentioned it, there was this study that came out in 2020 for our listeners that haven't heard about it um, called Trauma Treatment and Tetris. Video gaming increases hippocampal volume in male patients with combat-related post-traumatic stress disorder. This study and some studies like it have um, found that nonviolent video games that involve kind of problem-solving like Tetris, if they're used in the time immediately after a traumatic event, you know, whether it's that same day, ideally, even within hours of it, it seems to have almost this EMDR type effect in helping the brain cope with trauma. So for anybody that likes to nerd out on that kind of stuff, like Dr. Monroe Boyd and I do, please, I encourage you to look up that study. Um, one of the other questions I have for you on the topic of technology, how do you feel about social media? And coping. I mean, for younger children, they probably don't have access. They probably don't even know what it is, maybe. Um, but as kids get older, this is just part of the world that we live in. Th that's, again, another really loaded topic. How do you view that? Or is it exactly the same way? Is this about engagement? Or is this about avoidance? <laughs> I'm a, a lot more hesitant with the social media and kids um, just because there's so much that can really be harmful in regards to who they connect to, the amount of time spent. So not from my clinical hat, but just as a parent, um, it, there's with information that really uh, kids are like sponges. And so um, as compared to a video game, which you kind of know the gist of the game by just watching it, very different with social media because you don't know what pops up next. And like you mentioned, we could just mindlessly scroll and come across something that as an adult, we can hopefully discern in a better way. But as a child, maybe not having all those decision-making skills and what they click on next and who they connect to, much more of a concern. So I'm not a huge proponent of uh, children having social media just because of the, I believe there are some um, some risks there uh, that are hard to, there, there are avenues to protect uh, kids, different apps and things that parents can monitor. But I believe sometimes once you see something, it, it it's it's there. Not that it has to have the strongest impact, but yes, it, it cannot be unseen. So thank you. Thank you for addressing that. And also for our listeners, 
we had previously interviewed Dr. Don Grant about what he calls good digital citizenship and a conversation about social media use. Um, I want to encourage any of our listeners that want to learn more about kind of technology, what what's happening in our brains when we're engaging on social media, things like that. I encourage you to take a listen to that particular interview again with Dr. Don Grant. Um, Dr. Monroe Boyd, you've provided so much information today about what is healthy coping, what is unhealthy coping, discussion about things like Calm Corner, how do we talk about the big tough topics that none of us really want to talk about, but we really need to. So how do we create an environment to do that? Um, Thank you for joining us today. For our listeners who want to learn more about you and about your work, uh, what's the best way to do that? I love writing. I have a few books out there. One that has really been well-liked by parents and educators and counselors is B is for Breathe, goes through different coping skills for kids. Uh, My newest book is Creating Calm, which also introduces different relaxation techniques, including grounding, the 54321 method. So I'm really excited about that book. But my books can be uh, found on Linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E e slash Boyd, B-O-Y-D underscore books. And my books are all available on Amazon and then also on Barnes and Noble. Wonderful. I, I'm biased. Um, I really enjoy B is for Breathe. I think the graphics are great. I think the ideas are great. And I have used it many a time, um, not only as a clinician, but also as a parent. So thank you for your contribution in that way. Um, and so for folks that want to contact you, is it through Linktree just to to talk to you or to learn more about, more about your work? Linktree is a great way. And then also my email address, M-E-L-I-M-U-N-R-O dot Boyd at Yahoo.com. Um, it has been such a pleasure to spend this time with you. We've talked about some kind of heavier things and I appreciate your clarity and grace and transparency in how you even talk about these topics today. And, and I think it's an example for us as caregivers and as clinicians about having these conversations with the families with whom we're working in order to help our kids be able to cope in what is not always, uh, an easy world to cope in. <laughs> no, thank you for the time. I'm glad to glad to share uh, with fellow clinicians and, and parents just to help with building those skills in our kids so that managing the world as adults can hopefully be a, a bit smoother. Wonderful. Thank you again. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.